Well, good morning. Uh, in my neighborhood uh, growing up, we had uh, a lot of boys, which means that every day after school, we, we run in, we swear we did our homework, and we run outside and we play games, right? There's open field near our house, and there's you know, 15 or 20 guys in my neighborhood within several blocks, and every season we'd play something, whether it be football, basketball, baseball, street hockey. Um, so we played every sport, which means that some sports I was good at and some sports I wasn't good at. But my goal was very simple for the sports I was not good at, and my goal was not to be the worst. That was it, because I didn't want to be the worst, because if you're the worst, you're going to be picked last next time. You never want to be picked last. Now, we're kind of like this in life sometimes. We know there are some areas in our lives in this world that we're not going to be the absolute best in. Uh, but we want to be good enough to maybe blend in so that we're not seen as the worst, right? We may not be the smartest guy in the room but we definitely don't want to be the dumbest guy in the room. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul kind of boldly proclaims that Christianity is not for the smartest people of the world. It's not for the most intellectual elite. Christianity is not for the most powerful people in the world or the most prestigious people in the world. That doesn't mean it's not intellectual or logical or wise because it is. But essentially, Christianity is for the people who are picked last at recess. Christianity is for people who understand and realize that they have nothing to bring to the table. Their intelligence doesn't get them to heaven. Their wisdom and strength and prestige does not get them to heaven. Christianity is not for the person who has the biggest resume of skills, the most exciting experiences, or those who expect the most satisfying, rich life. Christianity is for the people who understand that their spiritual resume is so dark and they have no hope except they turn to Jesus. This morning we're going to read and preach from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 26. And Paul here is going to say that he loves to save the foolish, the weak, the despised, the, the lowly. Essentially, the summary is God loves to save the losers. Now, we may hate being a loser on the field playing a sport or at work or socially. We may be all about our reputation and how we come off to other people. But before God, if we are before the face of God, if we want salvation, we must come to grips that we bring nothing to him. There's no resume, there's no skills, there's no character, there's no morality that we should be able to boast and brag about. Nothing can make us good enough. And if we get to the point of realizing that, then we see the gospel as good news and not just an add-on to our lives. God chooses the weak and the lowly, the, weak, the, the despised, and God loves, God loves to choose the kid who is normally chosen last at kickball. But to be even more biblical, you and I are not even qualified to be on the kickball field, right? We are zip codes away, lost, nowhere to be found in the pits of life, and yet God goes and finds us and chooses us. That is grace. And I pray today as we read this text that we will realize and comprehend that spiritually we should never be chosen, but by his grace, he chooses us. And thank God it's more than for a game of kickball, it's for eternity. 
So let's read today uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, into chapter 2, verse 5. It's on page 952 of that Black Pew Bible in front of you or below you. Once you find that, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, show us wondrous things in your text this morning. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. This is our, uh, our, our, I believe, our fifth sermon in 1 Corinthians. So I want to catch you up because each verse here is connected to the verses before and after. Paul's writing to a church in the city of Corinth that he helped found and start uh, years ago. But there's a lot of issues going on here. So he kind of takes section by section where he is addressing those problems to guide them closer to the truth. And the main problem here in the first four chapters is that there's division and conflict and strife going on. Uh, They're choosing sides in the church walls. There's division. So overall, Paul's trying to unify the church back together. And our passage is part of that. And he accomplishes this by, by kind of leveling the playing field here. Some in the church are bragging and boasting. Some in the church are saying, this is my favorite pastor. No, this is my favorite pastor. And they're competing against each other. Paul looks at the whole church here in our passage that we just read. And he practically says, none of you are special. Your leaders and pastors aren't special. You're not special. The thing that we have in common is that we are weak and lowly, but yet we are chosen by God. So we shouldn't look at each other to compare or to be jealous of or to boast against. No, we are all foolish together. So let's be unified in that as we bow our knee to Jesus. So he writes this passage, and here's, here's the main idea of the passage in the sermon today. It is this, Christian, our boasting is only in God, for all things come from him and we have all things in him. All of our boasting, our bragging, is to be found in God, in God alone. This church is in the city of Corinth, which is a city of pride. They had a culture of performance. 
their version kind of of our Hollywood, right? Where these dynamic speakers and philosophers would come in. They try to attract a huge following and they would dazzle with their stories and they would awe people with their lofty speech and impart wisdom. It was a celebrity and performance culture. And if someone didn't speak well or their rhetoric wasn't good enough or sharp enough, they weren't loved or valued or invited back. Everything became about skill and performance. But here in what we just read, Paul reveals that Christianity is actually the opposite of this, the opposite of performance or dazzling or skill-oriented worldview. God doesn't sit in the audience of life and observe us and only choose the best speakers, only choose the people who had the, the best show or the most skills. No, God is not like the city of Corinth. God does actually the opposite because God calls people so that they will not boast in anything, not our accomplishments. We didn't earn a spot with God. We are saved despite our sin, but we are saved because of him. So all of the boasting is in him. And how different is that than Corinth? And how different is that for us too? A lot of times in life, we have to earn a spot and we have to maintain a spot. And we have to perform well enough or be included. We have to work at that. But with God, we are invited in and we are kept by God. We don't deserve the spot, but he holds it for us eternally. Right? God saves by his own power, by his own grace, for his own glory. We have nothing to boast or brag about. And if we understand this as a church, CVBC... I think a couple things are going to happen. We're going to see God as even more beautiful than we can imagine. That he would choose people like us and hold on to us and delight in holding on to us. But also it's going to unify us and humble us because we realize that we, yeah, we have nothing to brag about or to fight about or oppose each other in because we belong together. We were fools and sinners saved by God for his glory. So why fight? Why boast? Why judge? God did all of the saving. Let's appreciate it. So Paul essentially here is eliminating pride. And pride is the sin behind all sins. We, we sin because we think, I know best. It's my way, not God's way. I know better than God. My feelings trump the truth of God. So I do what I want. That's pride, right? It's, I'm the center of the world. I'm the center of the attention. So I am going to be my own person. But Paul's kind of like a precise surgeon here, right? He diagnoses the problem and he's going in to, to cut out the pride of our hearts and humble us that we may receive the sweet medicine of Jesus. So we're going to look at this text to see how we should only boast in God. We're going to do it by asking three questions today. And the first question is this, who does God choose? And the answer is the fools, the weak, the nobodies. The fools, the weak, the nobodies. We see this in verses 26 to 29. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. 
Paul comes to Corinth here. He's writing. He says, church, let's consider your calling. Let's be honest and have some good self-evaluation. He says, look, most of you, I know you. Um, I spent time with you in Corinth. You guys are not as smart as you think you are. Against the worldly standards of intelligence and philosophy, you guys aren't really smart. And not many of you are, are powerful. Like You don't have political capital or wealth. You guys are all pretty much nobodies in society. You're not even from influential families. You're not of noble birth, right? Paul wants to sit the church of Corinth to be real and honest and realize that they are nothing special, even in the, eyes, world, the world's eyes. Most of Corinth, of the city, a lot of it was poor, forgotten mass of the city. This church would get lost in the masses. Yeah, there were some rich and wealthy and influential people in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth. But that's not Paul's point. Paul's arguing when you show up at church and you look around, you're going to realize that we really are not that special. And yet God chose this church in Corinth anyway. Because God doesn't choose people based on their achievements or their wealth or their wisdom or their family line or their influence of what they do or don't do. Back in back last chapter, verses 10 to 17, churches ranking their favorite preachers based on skill. Well, I like Apollos more. I like Peter more. I like Paul more. But Paul says, guys, God doesn't pick people based on their skills. No, God actually chooses people opposite of the world. What is the proof that God is different than our world? Well, look, look around at the room and look at ourselves. Honestly, we are not special, right? We are a ragtag group of people. We're not elite. There's not a certain academic level or financial level that you must get to, to come into this church. We're all different. And yet here we are as the chosen people of God. Paul's trying to undercut our pride. But no matter if you're rich, even if you're an expert in this field, or maybe you're more moral than your coworkers or neighbors, guess what? Great, but none of that can bring you to God. Salvation is not for the prideful. It's not for the self-sufficient. If we boast in our lives at our own selves, then guess what? We can't boast in God. God is looking for the fools, the weak the low, the despised, because people who understand they bring nothing to the table can then receive the blessings of God at the table. The fools who know little, the weak who lack strength, the nobodies of society, those are the ones who realize they have no hope apart from Christ so they can throw their full weight of trust at Christ. God chooses the nobodies, why? Because he wants their full boasting in him. He saved sinners, period. A lot of times we think, yes, Jesus died for me, but I brought a little bit of something to the table as if we kind of are a member of a spiritual potluck, right? He might have had the main entree, but hey, we're bringing the sides, right? No, no, no. We bring nothing to the table. And by the way, when we knock on the door, we stink and we smell and we don't belong at the table or the meal. And yet he saves us anyway. We have souls darkened and depraved and we are dead in our sins. We bring nothing. We might be great employees and great neighbors. We might be great hunters and great bakers and have a good bank account. But before God, we have nothing. 
The gospel is only good news for those who realize this truth. If we realize that our worldly power and fame and prestige and our dreams and our aspirations mean nothing in regard to eternity, then we can see ourselves truly. Because before the all-knowing God, guess who we are? We are fools. Before the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-strong God, we are weak. Before the King of kings, the God who is who was and is to come, guess what? We are nobodies. So maybe instead of looking to the world to see how can I be satisfied or successful, have we looked at the face of God? And what do we see? We should see before a holy God, we should see our sin and our limitations and our weaknesses. And only then when we see a holy God and the filters of our own self-sufficiency come off, then can we see who we truly are and then we can receive the grace of Jesus. Now, friends, I'm not asking you to look at yourself today when you go home as scum of the earth without value because, no, God created you. But what I'm asking you is, do you actually need Jesus? Like, need him. And I don't mean like as a crutch or support during those really hard times in life. Do you need Jesus? That without him, you have no eternal value. That without him, you have no peace with God. Without him, that you are condemned, headed to hell. That without Christ, even if you have all of the riches and the fame and the resume and the strength, even if you have all that, but you don't have Jesus, guess what? In the end, you have nothing. God calls people who come to grips with their own spiritual nothingness. People who recognize they have nothing before God. And God with a smile and a delight on his face comes in and swoops up those people who are nobodies to save them. Because they get it. Right? Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, the very first Beatitude that Jesus says. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who gets the kingdom of God? Who gets eternity? Who gets hope with Jesus? Who gets satisfaction and delight? Who gets the abundant life in Jesus? The poor in spirit. Those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt before God. The ones who see their own sin and see their need for a Savior are the very ones who get the kingdom of God. Right? The more we make our identity in what we do, what we're good at, what we want to be good at, what we've earned, the less likely we are to actually need God. The more we rely upon our wisdom or our strength or our nobility, the less likely we are to rely upon Jesus. We trust more in ourselves and our comfort than we do in Jesus. Some of you have gone skydiving before, right? You get suited up, you get on a plane, you get to the sky, and then the door opens, and you are expected to jump and to leap into the sky, to trust that everything will be okay, despite all of your present circumstances saying it's not going to be okay. I want to use this analogy because it's like trusting Jesus is, is like opening the door and leaping into the sky and trusting you are safe with Jesus. But to take the leap with Jesus, you have to trust. And trusting in someone means that you are not in control. Right? As a skydiver, you might be jumping out thinking, oh no, what if my parachute doesn't open? Or even just thinking, wow, this is really high up here. 
But if you truly trust, you're not going to let those doubts or insecurities trump the truth. And as a person, okay, as a human, you are on a plane. You're, you're living life, you're on a plane, okay? And the longer we live and fly on this plane of life, the more comfortable it actually becomes. In life, we get our money, we get our possessions, our friends, our status, our hobbies, right? Our plane is, is full of it. We're headed towards a destination. We have all of our stuff we packed with us, and we're sitting there. We feel like we're in first class sometimes, our plane is full of everything we want and need, or, or we have our aspirations of where we're going. And Jesus shows up on the plane. He opens the door and says, do you want to jump with me? It'll be okay. You just, let's just jump off the plane. And maybe your whole life you've been complaining about how much, how little leg room you have on that plane of life. But all of a sudden, when you look out the window, you look back at your seat, your seat looks really good. It's safe. There's movies before there. Someone's serving you food and drinks. But Jesus opens that door. You, you see the ground below. You hear the whistling of the wind. You see the engines. And then you look back and you see the comfort of life on that plane. You can be in control. You have everything you need there. It's comfortable. What will you do? Because you can't be half in the plane and half out of the plane. Will you trust in the riches and the comfort of life, whatever they are, to deliver you to whatever final destination you think you're going to get to? Or will you take the leap with Jesus, trusting in him fully? No matter what he asks you to give up, you will give up because you know he's going to carry you through the ultimate final destination of eternity in peace with him. In other words, what I'm asking you is, in your head, what is more powerful to bring you a satisfying life? Is it yourself and your accomplishments or is it Jesus? In other words, who is more trustworthy, yourself or Jesus? Our strength, our hobbies, our skills, even all the good things we have in life, they do not bring us to God, and they don't bring us to satisfaction. Actually, by us realizing that all the stuff we have on that plane of life doesn't bring us to God, then if we understand that, then we can jump out with Jesus and actually find him as a refuge. Paul writes in verse 27 here that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That means that all people who choose to live apart from Christ and in their own earthly wisdom and manner of living, guess what? They're going to end up in shame. They will be apart from God, isolated from the rest of the elect. And all that they worked for will not deliver them to eternity. But the fools, the Christians, they will find eternity because they recognize their need for Christ. Paul reorients his church to show them they are nothing apart from Christ, that all we do in life can't save us. They can't bring us to any good. So only fully trusting in Jesus can. So we at CBBC, we kind of level the playing field here. This should unify us, actually. Bring us peace and harmony within. We should be able to look at each other with love and be kind to each other because every single one of us before God was nothing, but we are only something because of Jesus. None of us earned a spot in salvation. None of us earned a spot in this church. We are all nobodies who God loves to save. Can you honestly see yourself as a fool apart from Christ? Weak apart from Christ, a nobody apart from Christ. If so, 
you are the exact person that Jesus loves to save. How does he save the fools, the weak, the nobodies? Well, this is question two. How does God save them? It's through the weakness of the cross. Through the weakness of the cross. We love uh, underdog stories, right? Whether it be on the news or even movies, where the underdog character comes in and and does something extraordinary, right? Runs into a burning building or completes that, that long Hail Mary come, like touchdown pass to win the game. But Jesus, he doesn't save the nobodies with this ex- exaggerated act of strength or wisdom. He saves the nobodies through weakness. How does he save us? He saves us by death on a cross. So not only are you and I to see ourselves humbly as humans, but Jesus actually saves humans in the most humble way. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's the message that Paul preached? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The death of Jesus on a criminal's cross is the message he would preach time and time and time again. Now you could read through the Gospels and see these extraordinary miracles of Jesus. Positive miracles. Feeding the 5,000. Walking on water. Making the blind see. But what is Jesus most known for? A shameful, agonizing death on a criminal's cross. Yes, he resurrected. We have no gospel or salvation without the resurrection. But the cross is the shorthand word for the the gospel of salvation. The beating, the mocking, the agony, the death on a cross. That's the message that Paul preaches time and time again. Jesus does not save us by defeating an army with the sword. Jesus does not save us by winning some competition or out um, analyzing the competition. He saves us by humbly offering himself as our substitute. The cross is a sign of weakness. The cross was reserved to publicly humiliate and shame criminals, people who broke the law, that they will not only die for their, their offense, but they will be publicly shamed before everybody else. But Jesus... He wasn't a criminal. He didn't deserve to be crucified. He never committed an offense or a sin. He is God and yet humbly walked up a road carrying a cross to die on that cross. Though you and I deserve that death, you and I, because of our sin, our offense, deserve to not only pay the price against the holy God, but to be publicly humiliated before all the world to see in our shame. But Jesus, in the form of a man, comes to us gives up the riches of heaven, the comfort of being free from pain to come to earth to humbly die for man. The way of salvation, the way that you and I get saved is through the most humble act in all of history. Jesus saves us through a death. I mean, the famous hymn, right, in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? He emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way of Christianity is not pride or strength or nobility. It's one of humility, of emptying oneself, of servanthood. You cannot be saved unless you see yourselves honestly and humbly. But also, there is no salvation unless Jesus humbly comes. Right Earlier in verse 26, Paul saying to the church, right? Not many of you are wise or strong or of nobility, right? We get that. If we're honest, we get that. That's not really us. But you know what? Jesus was all those things. He is all those things. He is wise. He's all wise. God knows all things. He's omniscient and he actually lives out what he knows in his character. He is wise. He's also powerful. I mean, Jesus is omnipotent, all powerful. The winds and the waves will stop with a wave of his hand. And is he of noble birth? Well, was God born? No, he is God, king of kings, always existing. But when Jesus did come into our world incarnate, was he born into a palace? Was he born into a royal family? He was born into a family that was so forgotten to a point where his birth happened in a stable. Jesus gave up all of the riches of heaven, the excellency and the safety of heaven to model for us humility and to save us through a humble cross. So Christianity in the gospel is not for the elite. It's not earned by accomplishing things. It's not earned for only the best of the best. It is not for those who were picked first. Right? Jesus didn't save us by winning a game or becoming rich, becoming the best at this or the best at that. Jesus won our salvation by dying. This is a humble religion. It's a humble gospel. And Jesus on the cross was treated as a nobody. And by being treated as a nobody, saved the nobodies. So there is no room in Christianity for pride or for boasting or bragging. To consider yourselves as better off than someone else. Our faith is only real and ours because Jesus became nothing for us. So there's no place for boasting in ourselves. Jesus came to lay down his life for us. Will we lay down our lives? Will we let our achievements go? Our conquering can't save us. No, the only thing that saves us is us dying to ourselves like Christ died for us. So we cannot become Christians unless we look to the cross as our only salvation, which means we must take our eyes off of our works, off of our morality, off of us comparing ourselves to other people, saying, I'm better than them. God has to love me. No, the only way that we can be saved is by looking at the simple message of the cross. And maybe we get tired of hearing it, but guess what? We're going to keep preaching the humble cross. Why? That's the only way that sinners are saved. That's the only means for our sanctification. Paul says here, he does not come with lofty speech, he says, but he comes what? With the simple message of Christ crucified. It's not about fireworks. It's not about the bells and whistles, the best this, the best that. It's about the humble cross of laying down our pride and sin and looking to Jesus who laid down his life on the cross. The simple message of the gospel, time and time again. 
There's a famous story of how Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. I think I, I mentioned it like five times a year. I think I've only mentioned it three times this year, so I've got to catch up. But Spurgeon, back in the 1800s, caught himself in a snowstorm in London. And it was so snowy, and you could barely see it was freezing. He, he found refuge in a church he's never been in. He's not a Christian yet. He's seeking out what's true and what's, what's right in life, but he escapes and comes to church because that's the warmer place for him. And it was such a bad snowstorm in London that the preacher, the pastor, couldn't make it to church. So there's, I you know, a dozen or 20 people sitting in this old little church. And they're all sitting there, and Spurgeon's a visitor, and eventually a guy stands up and grabs his Bible and goes up to the pulpit. Preacher's not going to make it. This guy who stands up has no education. He's never preached before in his life. He's probably never spoken publicly before a crowd before. He makes shoes for a living, and that's all that he knows. But he turns to a verse that he loves in Isaiah 45 that commands people to look unto God for salvation. And he preached by reading the same text over and over again and calling the congregation, look to Jesus, look to the cross, look to Jesus. It was probably one of the worst sermons, I would imagine, in the history of the world. No sermon outline, no illustrations, probably not much application besides looking to Jesus. Right? When we would compare sermons, we probably would not go to that guy. And yet, what did he do? He preached the simple yet powerful and effective message of the cross. And that day, Charles Spurgeon as a teenager was saved. The message of the cross is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. It's the same cross and gospel that saves us today. So we don't belong here because of something we bring to the table. We don't come here to judge each other on worldly standards. No, we are here because of the humble cross that has saved us, united on the same team by the same humble cross. And the more and more we hear the gospel story, the more we fight pride. Right? There is no room in our hearts if the Holy Spirit is there for pride. There is no room in this church if the Holy Spirit is here for pride. Because God does all of the work of saving through His message. The only thing we should be boasting in is God. And this is our final point. How does God call us to live? How does God call the nobodies to live? And it's by boasting in God. Look through this text, you're going to see how much Paul gives credit to God for everything. He credits God for salvation. He credits God for his own preaching ministry. All of it is God's doing. So all boasting and glory and praise belong to God and not Paul. I want to read verse 28 and the rest of the passage one more time here. Look how much Paul brags on God. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I, Paul, came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
If we had the power, if we had the power to save ourselves even a little bit, we would brag. But Paul makes it clear, salvation and the entirety of the Christian life is all because of God. In verse 30, he says, in Christ Jesus, not in myself, not in my good deeds, not in this other philosophy. No, in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That means that in Christ, we have a right life, a wise life. We can live out as Christ wants us to live only because of him. So in him, we have, what does it say? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. The totality of our Christian life and future life is in Christ. We are only saved because of God. We are only saved for the rest of our lives, carried in the arms of God to salvation, to eternity because of God. Our future hope is only because of God, all because of God. So we have no reason to boast in ourselves. My money can't get me there. My aspirations can't get me there. My accomplishments have no eternal value. But Paul makes it even more clear. He says, as a pastor, and Paul, the most famous pastor and preacher of all time, Chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, he says, Even my preaching is not about me, but it's about God. He says he intentionally did not preach lofty sermons, but actually at times he came trembling with fear. Why? Because he doesn't want the people to find any sense of their salvation or Christian life rooted in him as a human being. He wants them only to boast in Jesus. So he preaches in a way that doesn't put the spotlight on himself, but puts the spotlight on Jesus. So he doesn't preach like all the famous uh, speakers in Corinth of the day with all of the, the big spotlights and the magic shows and all this. No, he says, I want Jesus to be known. So I preach in a way that Jesus is known. It's like the old mantra, right? What you win them with, you win them too. If Paul did a light show, right, while he's preaching, people would be entertained for sure, but they would be saved to the entertainment and not to the gospel. He wants the message of the gospel and the mode of communicating the gospel to match up. What you win them with, you win them too. He wants the power of the message to not be in him, but what? In demonstration of the Spirit. The Spirit who saves us in the message of Jesus. Not Paul. Paul's not going to do this huge theatrical thing. No, he's going to make sure that the gospel is seen clearly so that no one can say, Paul saved me, but Jesus saved me. It's the goal of the preacher, right? The goal of even of you as an evangelist, if you're sharing the gospel with someone, our goal is to hide behind the pulpit in the Bible. Yes, God uses preachers to teach. Yes, God uses you to evangelize. But our job is not to make ourselves known, but to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Paul says not only is he saved by God, but his ministry exists for God. He says in verse 4, let them not find power in me, but power in God. God saves, God sanctifies, God redeems. God does the A to Zs of the Christian life. So we boast in him. That's why verse 31 is a good summary. It's our chief application. Let us boast in the Lord. Is your life one that lives out this verse? Is your life one where you boast in Jesus, where you are living in such a way that the spotlight is on him? Because if we're humble and honest, we realize, well, we don't want the spotlight on us anyway. Why? We stink, we smell, we're fools, we're weak. So we live to put the attention and the affection of our lives on Jesus. How do we practically do this? I want to finish briefly by mentioning three ways that you can boast in the Lord. 
First is this, boast in the Lord with your lips. So firstly, we sing songs to praise God, not just because it sounds pretty, even though it does. We sing to audibly confess and match our heart with the words we're singing. Sing to God. The Bible commands it. Psalms is, the, is a songbook of the Bible. Sing to God with us here. Proclaim out loud. Hear your own voice singing. If you can't hear yourself singing, you're not singing loud enough. Sing at home. Sing in your car. Praise Him for who He is. Boast in God with your voice. But also, I want you to pray. Now, yes, we pray a lot internally, right? We do that. But I also want you to have some times in your day where you're praying out loud. When we pray, we are boasting in God. We're relying on Him and His strength and His wisdom. We're trusting in Him. And one way to know that if pride is winning in your life, look back and see if you've prayed. If I'm prideful, I'm not going to spend time doing this thing where I talk and apparently someone hears me. I can't see them. I can't hear an audible voice back from God. Why would I waste my time praying if I can be productive doing A, B, and C, right? Prayer humbles us because prayer recognizes I can't do this life on my own. I'm going to pray and trust that God hears me and God's going to do something. Prayer is hard and prayer exists in the life of humble people. And I encourage you to pray out loud. Hear your own reliance upon God. If you don't know what to pray, you know what you can do? Tell God what you love about him. What about his character? What has he done in your life? Pray, profess, sing, boast in God with your lips. Jesus says, from the heart, the mouth speaks. Second way to boast with your life in the Lord is to boast in the Lord with your obedience. We can boast in the Lord with our obedience. We make much of God when we obey him. Because think about it. If you are saying no to sin, no to what your fleshly desires want you to do, and you say yes to God, you are saying, God, though I want to do these things, I am boasting in you, putting the spotlight on you, submitting to you. So when we obey as a Christian, we are proclaiming that we are all about God. When we fight sin and we choose righteousness, we are boasting in him, saying that God gets to call the shots, and they are good shots. We already bowed our knee to be saved by King Jesus. Now every day let's bow our knee in submission and boast in his commands and boast in his orders and boast in his character. But third and finally, we boast in the Lord with our servanthood. Servanthood. Paul's writing a letter to a church, to a group of people, not an individual. So again, we've got to look at this. How can we do this together as the church? And one of the ways that we can boast in God together and put the spotlight on God together is by serving each other like crazy. How are we saved into the church? By Jesus laying down his life as a servant to us. How can we serve each other? When we serve each other, we are being like Jesus to each other, and that makes Jesus so present here. We are going to do exactly what Jesus did on the cross, lay down our lives for each other. That's the best way we can communicate to each other that we love each other. So how can you help someone here? How can you encourage someone here? How can you offer the affection of Jesus to someone here? Use your skills, your money, your resources, your time to love someone here. Because guess what's going to happen? Someone's going to hurt you or offend you. Do you know how to model 
Jesus to them. We forgive them. Selfishly, I want to hold a grudge. Right? I want to be bitter. I want to run from that person, resent that person. But when I forgive someone and I serve them, guess what I'm doing? I am boasting in Jesus because my way does not want to do that. When you walk through a trial of suffering with someone, that can be time-consuming, emotionally taxing. But what are you doing? You are boasting in Jesus who walked through the trials of life for us. When we lay down our lives for each other, saying, how can I serve my brother or my sister? We are boasting in God and making him known because Jesus did this for us. So CVBC, our entire salvation, our entire Christian life, our entire church belongs to God. So we're going to boast in him alone. I want to finish by reading um, a, a quote from the Heidelberg Catechism written several hundred years ago. It's beautiful and it, and it kind of wraps us up for us. It says this, I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we mean that? That I am not my own, but I belong both body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If we're not our own, but if we belong to God, our only proper response is to boast in Him. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you have done all of the work that you have brought everything to the table and you've saved us from our sin, our darkened soul. You've died and you've resurrected. And now you're carrying us into eternity. All of our boasting is for you. I pray you match our hearts up with those words from your text today, that we may boast only in you, our life, our church. Everything we have is from you and it's for you and your name. So Lord, we come with one last song of, of praise to boast in you. Because for you, you deserve all the glory, the honor, the praise forever and ever. Amen.